You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. Which of those titles would be hardest for the world to accept? And I would offer to you, it wouldn't be teacher, it wouldn't be leader, it wouldn't be sort of moral person. I would offer to you that it would be savior. Because what does a savior imply? I need saving. And if I need saving, saving from what? Saving from sin, saving from myself. There's something about me that's inadequate. There's something about me that doesn't match up. Something about me that's wrong. The classic, and I would offer to you stereotypical pattern, that would be, it would be, well, I don't want to be a part of something that's judgmental. Are you judging me? Have anybody heard that recently? Are you judging me as a way to sometimes address people who are being judgmental? I get that. But oftentimes as a way to deny, push back, and deflect on serious self-consideration. I have a right to be what and who I am. And although that's true in a democratic culture, it's certainly not true in eternity. So I would offer to you, Savior is a big deal. And uh, I want to thank you for the privilege and the opportunity of being here this week. If you're counting, this is third week in a row, and you made it. Uh, next week, uh, John will be back. and and uh, we're returning, and I thank you for the privilege and to help John to preach the word, but especially for the privilege of speaking the theology of the cross. Uh, John dropped me off and gave me the text for beginning at Mark chapter 8, and I'm thinking, yes! (laughs) Uh, This is that part of the stuff which I have learned over my years in ministry, preaches itself, um, because it is so unique and so powerful and so phenomenal and so right angle to culture. It's just like, are you kidding me? I'm trying to think of some ways in which we can kind of grasp the metaphor before we kind of dive into this thing. And uh, I would think, uh, some of you see uh, the set of grandkids that I had here. There was a host of them, boom, <laughs> over there. And uh, this family's got eight, which is a longer story. And seven of them were present. And what if I said to them, uh, who would like an ice cream bar? And, you know, so you would anticipate ice cream bars go over pretty good. Although every once in a while somebody goes, what else do you have? You know, <laughs> so that's another story. And, and Grammy, otherwise known as Mary Louise, usually has other colored popsicles. So you did have your choice at our house between an ice cream cone and a popsicle. And then on occasion, they would say, what color popsicles do you have? You know? So there's always a sort of pickiness. But I say, well, that's, good. that's great. But first, I need you to come with me and help clean up the neighbor's yard. Sammy and Christine aren't doing well, and we want to lend them a hand. So before we get to the ice cream part of things, uh, I'd like to ask you to go put on some old clothes and get out in the Florida heat in July and do some yard work with me. Do you think the enthusiasm will wane? Well, of course it will. The example is silly and obvious. 
But suppose that I were able to persuade them, and instead of, uh, so we finished the yard work and we're now all sweaty and grumpy and uh, yes, grandkids get grumpy despite all of the rumors to the contrary. Um, and instead of giving them an ice cream bar or a colored popsicle chosen specifically by Grammy, I take them to the ice cream store. And they get to go to Scoops. They get to pick three flavors. We have a rule of thumb in, my, uh, in our house for grandkids, and that's a minimum of two. You cannot have one cookie. And there's kind of a game that we play. Uh, they do that and say, Grandpa, can I have a cookie? And I say, no. And they pucker their lips and go, Grandpa, can I have two? Yes! <laughs> so you have a minimum of two scoops at scoops. You see the difference. Well, to get to the two scoops at scoop, we walked through the yard of my neighbor and the work and the effort and I don't wanna kind of phenomena. I wanted to provide sort of a simple way to kind of metaphor out in a clear language what the theology of the cross is. For the first eight chapters of Mark, John and I, and I still sub to him once, sub to him once in a while, have been talking about the amazing things he's been doing. The amazing things and the way in which he does them are just amazing. It's so cool. It's like, did you see that? A few loaves of fish and bread and everybody walked away filled up. This is so crazy. That's great. Did you see that? That person couldn't see and now they can see. Oh my goodness, this is amazing. And those Pharisees and those Sadducees, those stuck up folks, did you see Jesus put that in his place? Cool! Then all of a sudden, all of that coolness and all that momentum changes in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus starts quizzing them. So Jesus moves into this transitional period and says, okay, so great, so who are people saying that I am? And then you know what comes next. Who do you? That's great. But how about you? Who do you say that I am? And in my imagination, the crowd got really quiet, and Peter goes, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Christos. And then Jesus kind of steps up and goes, and here's the nature of the Christos. It's moving over into Sammy and Christine's yard, only multiplied. We're about to go into Jerusalem, and the Messiah, as spoken of in Isaiah 53, the Messiah, the Christos, is going to suffer and die and be handed over to the authorities and be crucified. Oh, that doesn't sound as much fun. But what you get is better even than two scoops at scoop. What you get is eternal life. Trust me, you're going to want to be there. See the phenomenon which is going on? That's the larger picture of what's happening in, this, in these chapters. And that's what I want to walk through to kind of give us the theology and then close that out today. This is uh, inspired by the movie Inception, which Hugo reminded me is the title. Uh, it's a movie about a dream within a dream within a dream. John has given us the Gospel of Mark, and now within the Gospel of Mark, we've created a worship series. And now within that worship series, I've created a sub-worship series. Don't tell him I did this. Uh, uh, <laughs>
that sub-worship series, that subset of the larger worship series is a theology of the cross, which leads to incredible freedom in the nature of paradox. So let's kind of walk through that. The paradox of growing up to have a childlike faith. Or why is this kid leading the church council meeting? <laughs> so that's where we're at today as we walk through this. And I'm going to get to the scriptures in just a bit. That's our text. But I want to kind of back us in. So part two, which was last week, is the paradox of how a cross becomes a source of comfort. What's interesting is that we were at the Mount of Transfiguration and Jesus' gown is, is, is absolutely shown brighter and more brilliant than any cleansing and Clorox could get it. So he's glorified and standing beside him, and they know his name is Elijah, representing the prophets, and uh, Moses representing the law and the voice of God. And what does the voice of God say? I really love this guy. Now he says, this is my son, listen to him. Why would he say listen to him? Because what you're hearing is causing you problems. Six days earlier, Peter was rebuked. Well, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Peter was rebuked by Jesus for simply caring enough to want to steer Jesus away from the cross. Hmm. So we'll go from part one. We started off with the paradox of sacrificial love. This is super powerful, and I learned this as a, I've also studied and used to be certified marriage and family therapist. And uh, there's a point at which uh, in almost every marriage, you'll find that people are attracted to one another because it feels so good. <laughs> I'm in love, and I get tingly and excited, and there's sexual energy and intimate energy, and everything is just kind of happening on automatic and I think about this person and I just start to daydream away. And then there comes a therapist called The Wall. I think Pink Floyd called it too, another brick in the wall. If you laughed at that, you're older than, you, than I thought you were. So The Wall is when all of a sudden love switches. Love switches from it feels good to me to it feels good to you. And that's a big leap. That's where we're at here. We're telling Peter and the disciples, this isn't about love which feels good to you. This is about love which is done for the sake of another. It's a big jump. The paradox of sacrificial love. This is the largest and harshest rebuke that I can find in the New Testament. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. One of the translations reads, On things which are merely human. And this was in the first installment in our subset series to try to give us some sense of how hard it is to snap ourselves out of this because I can't snap myself out of human thoughts. <laughs> I can't stop coming from my own perspective. I can't stop seeing things from my point of view. I just can't stop it. Jesus would say to me, Carl, I know, I know. That's why I paid the price and I thought of you before me and I'm your savior. 
So this is the setup here is that what got Peter in trouble wasn't that he doing anything other than trying to deter the theology of the cross, trying to keep Jesus from going to Jerusalem, trying to protect him from the death which he just pre predicted he was going to experience on the, as a result on behalf of us. Wow. So this is a tough momentum. I use this as a, as a sort of a train metaphor to say, this is my train. <laughs> I've got a bunch of baggage back there. And all kind of concerns for me. Some of this is my leisure. Some of this is my family. Some of this is my friends. Some of this, but it's all about Carl. It's Carl who's the engineer driving the train forward. So when Jesus slams on the brakes and says, or Jesus says, says to me, stop, you're headed in the wrong direction, it's not an easy phenomenon. Little trivia, I asked, and I looked it up because I have no clue other than what I would find online. How long does it take? To stop an average freight train going 50 miles an hour, which is their average speed, how long? Mile. Mile or more. It's a long time. They don't just stop on a dime. And the same thing kind of happens to me and to you, is that the realization that, that we need a Savior and the realization that our lifestyle must change, we could slam on the brakes now, but there's a momentum which kind of just keeps pushing us forward, which is why we've been invited back into worship which is why we've been invited back to the sacrament, because that momentum keeps pushing us forward down the tracks. So the reason why this is important is because it's phroneo. I did not know, turns out, how to put the Greek letters up there like John does. Uh, I've been secretly jealous of that for a long time. Then I find out why it does that. So. <laughs> He did it for me. That's marvelous. I, you know, it's all about me, right? Talk about me perspective, because I'm the only one in here who can read the Greek, probably, because uh, John's not here. Freneo. The stuff is freneo to us. The word freneo means diaphragm in the Greek. You go, what? It means diaphragm. It means diaphragm, because this is the core. This is the center of being. This is where I take my deep breath. And by the way, if you're a soldier and you have a very sharp spear or a very sharp sword, where are you trained to attack your enemy? In the freneo, because that's the core, the center of being. It's the center of health, center of well-being. And that phenomena is true because this is how Jesus is addressing us. He's addressing our freneo, our diaphragm, our core, the very absolute center. For the Hebrew and for the Aramaic mindset, the center of the person isn't the heart. That's Greek. For the ancient Hebrew, it's the guts, the core, the breath, the, the diaphragm. It's that phenomenal. The point of this is the theology of the cross is that changing, is that it literally takes our breath away, which is okay because Jesus gives us new breath. The word for breath, wind, and spirit in the, he, in the Hebrew is all the same. Ruach. The word for breath, wind, and spirit in the Greek is all the same. Pneuma. He gives us new holy breath that fills our freneo with different air. So, 
Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life will keep it. It's been part of the paradoxes we've been examining. So what Jesus is doing is taking the disciples' world and ipso facto our world and absolutely flipping it. Absolutely saying, no, 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 no. You thought the way you saved your life was by saving it. That's how you lose it. And you know you're engaging a paradox when Jesus, when you go like this, you go, wait, 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 wait. say that again. What? This is what we've been trying to escape. This is a simple diagram of the muck and the mire that any of us get trapped in. This is an addict's cycle, and so let's, let's call it alcoholic. An alcoholic has a craving and wants a drink. We'll go through a ritual of either hiding that or uh, going to the store and getting a case or finding the vodka, whatever ritual that is, then they'll use it. Then there's often guilt which follows and an emotional trigger which follows that as they begin to recover. And that goes on into craving and ritual and they're caught. And you could substitute almost any addiction. It could be sex, drugs, uh, rock and roll. <laughs> I didn't know it was rock and roll. Um, shopping. It's just the nature of sin. It can be cleanly, cleanly and easily identified from an addict's perspective, but this is my cycle, and I am not an addict to anything in particular, but to everything in specific. I'm constantly fighting cravings. I have rituals of which I dance around. Then I use stuff which makes me feel better about me. And I feel bad and stupid about that, and all of a sudden something happens to me and it starts the whole power process again. That's the nature of what it, This is what Paul says in Romans chapter 7, the good that I want to do that I end up not doing, that what I don't want to do that I do, that I do I don't want to do. I thought about getting that up there. That's my life, and it's from that that I need rescuing. Which is why the... Again, the kind of transfiguration, which I got ahead of myself a little bit, that's the point of the transfiguration. It was not for Jesus, in my opinion. Uh, Jesus knew where he was going, what he was doing. He had the plan. He was executing it with precision. It was so that the disciples would say, especially Peter right there, okay, this theology of the cross thing is real, and, and it's important for me to gear up and be next to my Lord throughout the process because... Moses is okaying it, Elijah's encouraging it, and the father said, listen, all right, all right, all right, we've got to go down the mountain and get busy. This is my beloved son, listen. He's telling you something which is hard to hear. Listen. This is the text that was assigned for today. It's a bit longer, and we'll begin to kind of break it down and break it out afterwards, but this, let's follow along, and I'll make some comments on it as we go. This is from Mark chapter 9. They went out from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples so some breakaway time, because he knows this is hard for them to hear, and it's about to hit the fan, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And he's already said this, but he has to keep saying it. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. Now, stop right there for just a second. You and I have a sense of the end of the story and the nature of resurrection. We've been to Easter services. 
this is brand new information. They've heard of restorations. They've heard of Jairus' daughter coming back from the dead. But to rise, to be resurrected with a body that would never die, that was never, ever, ever introduced. They had no clue what that looked like, what that was, or what that meant. Did he say rise? What's a resurrection? And they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. See, this is so typical. It's like, oh, if I get more information, it's going to require more of me, so I'm not going to ask. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, uh, <clears throat> what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest, and he sat down and called the twelve. So, <laughs> Jesus is trying to take a reading on whether this theology of the cross, whether they're switching from love of others, whether they're going to help him in his journey to sacrifice. And are they getting it? Oh my goodness, not only are they not getting it, they're moving in the other direction. I would love to have heard that conversation. No, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And I have kind of heard this conversation at pastoral conferences from time to time. I'm tr I will confess to you as an LCMS pastor that pastors belong oftentimes to the brotherhood of the okay. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Church is growing. Income is up. The church is giving me extra vacation time. I get applause after every sermon. Things are going really wonderfully. And I'm exaggerating, but pastors do talk like that. We, implying, I really have it together. And it's also kind of implying, don't you think I have it together? If anyone would be first, he must be last and servant of all. And he took a child. We're going to come back to this. He took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Always, always tying it into the work of the Father and pointing back to him. So John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop them because he was not following us. So, to interrupt myself again, <laughs> this is, in my opinion, I've read this and reread this and thought about this. This is one of those stall tactics. This is, a, this is a, a detour that John is trying to take for the sake of the disciples because what they're talking about is super uncomfortable. <laughs> It's the, it's the literal canary, right, kind of look. It's the guilty Cheshire cat. They were all discussing who was the greatest. Jesus caught them. So he's, they're all kind of feeling uncomfortable and afraid to break eye con make eye contact and kind of looking around. And John goes, oh, by the way, uh, we saw somebody casting out demons. Like, <laughs> try to do an end around on that. Watch what Jesus does with it. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one knows, does a mighty work in my name will able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of cold water to drink because you belong to Christ, will by no means lose his reward. 
Okay, it's kind of like Jesus deals with it. Now it goes right back to all the discomfort. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So Jesus is getting dramatic and speaking full of hyperbole now because why? Because they're not getting it. They're not understanding. He wants them prepared. He doesn't want them to think that things are out of control when he makes it to Jerusalem, but that the, the, what's going to happen in Jerusalem is a part of a plan. And they don't get it. They're going to arrive in Jerusalem and be panicked and broken because they're going to think that things are, he's losing when the very things that are happening are illustrative of his winning. Whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me is going to be better for a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So the image with this kid in front of them, as you can only imagine, it's offensive. And if that wasn't offensive, then he steps it up a notch. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and then go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Ugh. Now I'm left with horrid thoughts. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. Well, that's some tough choices. So Jesus not only doesn't take John's redirect to talk about others, keeps it in the room, focused on the child with really hard to digest truth. Now I got pictures of footless, handless me going forward, going, really? You see Jesus just absolutely grabbing their spiritual throats and going, pay attention. And if your eye causes you to sin, oh man, let's not go there. Tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than the two eyes be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Now Jesus turns up the heat on the definition of hell. Holy cow. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, its preservation, its seasoning, how do you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Hmm. So here we go. There is the kid at the uh, church council meeting. So who, who's the chairman of the church council here? He's not here. Uh, it's right there. Good. We'll be asking you to step aside. And it looks, it looks ridiculous and silly, but that's how this would have looked ridiculous and silly to place a child in their midst and say, be like a kid. Children in ancient cultures were to be neither seen nor heard. So we've got to take a little bit of time to kind of get some context for ancient cultures. And frankly, the studying that I've done over my ministry years, and specifically this week, is unpleasant. And I thought, I'm not going to mention some of the things that I learned and what goes on. Some of the things that kings do and emperors did with, with little kids. I don't even want to talk about, but they were thrown away like so much ab abuse and misuse that it's just, ugh, it doesn't belong in a sermon. But mainstream culture did not 
supply a place for kids. There was no Peace Lutheran Early Learning Center. There was no laws and regulations. There was no process for following up on abuse or neglect charges. There was no committees, groups, policies, and plans. They were in the background. So you have to get some little glimpse of the fact that kids were not valued at all because Jesus is taking that unvalued uh, kids who are incredibly abused and misused in ways that don't bear public repeating by emperors and those in power, um, and then putting them in the middle. <laughs> so it's not just a silly picture of somebody running a church council meeting. It's kind of the same offensive pattern. Kids were neglected and pushed to the side. I did some research from the associate professor of Hebrew University, T.M. Lemos, and she said, children experienced violence, were sometimes slaves, and were even adopted only to transfer land or pay debts. A common practice, according to her. Child sacrifice, although not common. She said it was overstated. Was, but it was practice, and may have been echoed in the story of Abraham and Isaac, which is a story that's always bothered me. The story of Abraham and Isaac, way back in Genesis 22, where God says to Abraham, uh, if you really love me, you'll sacrifice your son for me. And the reason why God could say that and Abraham might follow along with that is because there was the practice of child sacrifice. You know the story is that when Abraham bound his son and raised the blade, the angel caught him and stopped him from doing that. But the fact that he would ask him to do that, I thought, wow, I don't think I'd have made it in the ministry. Anyway, this is important because that's the context for children and kids, and Jesus is absolutely violating that by placing a kid in his midst. And in my imagination, maybe just because that's the way I do it, goes down on one knee and puts a kid a piety on, which would be a toddler to young child, on his lap, and the kid is kind of throws an arm around his neck and is looking around at the disciples looking awfully concerned and this innocent kid is, doesn't know that he's making a lesson that's going to turn their lives around. Jesus says, not only do I want you to be like this, I want your faith to continue to be like this. Jesus wants children to be clearly seen as a model for believing, trusting, and surrendering. The reason why I love the practice of infant baptism is it serves as a marvelous example of how to receive faith. I've certainly had infants screaming <laughs> their, their way through baptisms over, over time, but uh, none of them have sat up and said, I'm done with this. I don't want any more a part of this. Because they can't. I get the language thing and all the rest of that stuff. But the way in which they receive the water, the way they receive the love, the way in which a child is received or receives the cuddling and the, and the care is an example of the kind of faith we should have. Kind of a sidebar story kind of applies. One of the most popular and, re and memorable uh, Christmas Eve services that I ever preached was at St. John of Rochester when I had the deaconess that I was working with at the time arranged for a infant who had been changed, 
fed and was quite satisfied with life, maybe even sleeping, would bring her or him up to the front and let me walk around and give the sermon on Christmas Eve like this. Oh, I had backup plans. Uh, this child started screaming or crying. We had baby one, goodbye, baby two, hello. <laughs> but don't tell anybody else that. That was just between me and you. And I remember it so well because I was walking around holding this baby, first of all praying, oh, please work, please work, please work. And each baby was quiet, but I just spoke above a whisper. It was a big sanctuary, it was a big church. It was about six, seven hundred people packed in on a Christmas Eve service. And you could have heard the proverbial pin drop. I said, this is what God did. He joined us as a baby. Super powerful. Put the baby down, people stopped listening to me. <laughs> Which is the point. Jesus wants the child to claim it, but it's a huge leap. It's a huge jump. It's a part of this theology of the cross example. There's those kids who were being pushed into slavery, occasionally sacrificed, certainly pushed to the edge of culture, showing little or no value except for monetary change and exchange. And he said, be like that. Childlike faith is the only thing that makes it through. Uh-huh. I can feel the emo emotion come up when I remember ministering to little children who are dying and the funerals that I've done of little kids break my heart and I'm not the same. It makes an etching in my soul that all has altered me in ways that are hard to define. It hasn't been a lot, but it's been too many. And what's so powerful is that some of the kids that have died of leukemia and cancer, one young man with an accidental shotgun blast is like, ugh. What's so amazing to me is that the kids have led me through it. It'll be okay, Pastor. I'm going to see Jesus. Gee, any other words of wisdom for me? I'm the pastor. I went to seminary. I just walked in here for you to give you all sort of comfort. And now I'm walking out with comfort. Childlike faith is the only thing that makes it through. I have a whole sermon series that maybe John will kind of adapt one day. It's called The Only Way Out is Through. Like the disciples were always looking for ways around things. And nope, because it's only through that we gain a sense of trust and love and hope and surrender as we go through, as children have done for me. Receiving, allow, receiving, allowing, surrendering is the key to connection with Jesus and the Father. A theology of the cross isn't about figuring it out, making sure that we got the definition of a paradox right. It would be Peter when Jesus is told Look, we've got a rough road ahead, and I'm about to be killed, and this band is going to go. Peter would have said, instead, whew, this is going to be rough. But as long as we're together, as long as you're, I'm by your side, as long as you're encouraging me, we will 
walk this road to the glory of God. But Peter said, no, I'll let, I won't let that happen to you. And even in the Garden of Gethsemane, he drew out a sword and cut off the, the ear of Malchus. He still wasn't quite getting it. I think this is the key to separating Christianity from any other faith or religion or theology or the ideology. Is that it's not about a teaching that you've got to learn or figure out. Despite our focus on catechetical teaching and the Luther's Catechism that I grew up with in the Lutheran Church, it's simply about receiving love. It's simply about surrendering to God. And that's a lot harder because guess who's not in control? And I really want to be in control. You see, all of this comes at all hyperbolic costs. Pluck out your eye, cut your foot off. Cut your Jesus is not instructing us to do such things as the images, but the images are meant to be what is exactly happening. The disciples aren't getting it. He's got a child in their midst that's normally marginalized in culture and society. He's got a hand, a foot, and an eye, stuff you need. <laughs> and that would hurt and would leave a person mar marked and maimed forever. And he's using every possible example to say, here's what the Messiah is going to do and do for you. The closing paradox is really what leads us off. I thought, now how do I end my subset of a subset? And this is probably my favorite New Testament passage. No sin became sin. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin to make us sinless to know God. Somehow that didn't turn out well. The closing paradox. No sin became sin to make us sinless to know God. No sin, that's Jesus. He was sinless. But he became sin to make us sinless so that we would know God. Huh. Wow. This is how it actually reads from 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Why would Jesus go through all this theology of the this theology of the cross, this paradoxical teaching, this hyperbole in his speaking, this violation of social norms by placing a child in their midst? Why would he pull the disciples aside and avoid the crowds? Why would he condemn Peter in the harshest terms? All that Peter wanted to do was protect Jesus and keep him from dying. Why, why, why all that? Because of this. Here was his plan. Here was his mission. For our sake. He didn't need to do this for his sake. For our sake. He made him to be sin. So when Jesus hung there on the cross, it wasn't just the stripes of the Roman whip that left on his back, the physical markings. It was when God closed his eye. There's all kind of issues that I have with um, Jesus Christ Superstar from the 70s and the 80s. You remember that? It's all kind of some really good music and some really bad theology. But one of the things that I liked about it was as the 
um, movie was shown, Jesus was on the cross, and the eye on the screen was behind the cross. And the eye was meant to be God, and God closed his eyes to his son. He said, to hell with you. To hell with you. You suffer all of the torment and all the mistakes and all the selfishness and all the reflexes of Carl. Because, why? Because I love Carl. And he can't rescue himself from himself. For our sake, he made him to be sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Who knew no sin? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. Far beyond the original metaphor of two scoops at scoops. <laughs> what the Lord has in store for us no language can contain. But I can promise you this. There'll be no more questions. I shared it with you before. People will tell me, oh, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask. No, you're not. You're going to get to heaven and go, why didn't Carl and John say so? <laughs> and guess who's going to be at the center? It ain't me. And it ain't you. For the Lamb is at the center and will be its light. We will be made righteous because of Christ and what he did. Yes! In Jesus' name, amen.